You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. And uh, this is a little bit new, listeners, but uh, before we get into our discussion today, I just wanted to briefly uh, mention our new sponsor. That's right. The Asia Geopolitics Podcast is now sponsored. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering this region. DRI inherits this basic approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to our exclusive network of subject matter experts and and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information on DRI, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. All right, Uh, Prashant, so we have a couple recent developments, or at least one recent development and one upcoming development to talk about on this episode. And as as the year will have it, we keep going back to the Korean Peninsula because uh, important things keep happening there. And uh, last week, while I was away on vacation, um, we got news from first uh, China's Xinhua News Agency and then North Korean state media that finally, after well, um, you know, well after a year after accepting Kim Jong Un's invitation to Pyongyang, Chinese President Xi Jinping would be making a trip. And he did make a trip, and this trip marked the first high-level summit uh, between China and North Korea on North Korean soil in 14 years since uh, Hu Jintao's trip in 2005 when he met with Kim Jong-il. So this is uh, surely a watershed moment uh, in the broader story of the often misunderstood and difficult relationship between China and, and North Korea. Um, but you know, I was I was out in uh, wine country in California, not necessarily paying attention to the day to day details of the summit. Really, kind of taking it in after everything went down. Uh, but I'm curious because I know uh, you know you were following it as it all went down. You know, what was your uh, what was your initial reaction uh, to uh, to sort of the theatrics around this summit? I mean, it was very tightly calibrated. There was no foreign media reporting. It was all kind of presented to the outside world via. Uh, the masterful calibration of uh, state media in both China and North Korea, uh, both of whom are, uh, you know, excel in the art of propaganda and presentation when it comes to these kinds of events. So I'm just curious, you know, what your reaction was uh, kind of watching this historic summit go down. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, the word that you used, which is theatrics, I, I think really encapsulates uh, the visit, right? Uh, I think we saw very little in terms of anything that was new substantially and in terms of substance. But we saw a lot of uh, stylistic devices that are being used by both sides to advertise how close the relationship was. As you said, this is a relationship that you know has always been, to a certain degree, misunderstood, right? I mean, if you look at the rhetoric dating back to Mao, there, there's all this rhetoric about you know the, the the two countries being as close as lips and teeth, and so on and so forth. This is technically an alliance relationship. But in reality, over the past few years, we've seen a real fraying um, and testing of, of of the relationship between China and North Korea. Uh, I think the the main interest and plug for for the trip is the fact that it's occurring with the other um, upcoming development that we're talking about, which is the G20, right? Where we're supposed to see a few other significant meetings, including the meeting between 
Xi Jinping and President Donald Trump. We're not sure if that's actually going to happen. So far, it's been confirmed, but you never know with with uh, President Trump. But so far, I mean, the the fact that this visit is happening so close to that meeting, um, I, I think has led to commentators concluding that this is somehow tied to Xi Jinping and China's effort to reinsert and sort of reinforce China's role and leverage in the Korean question. And any sort of path that the North Korean uh, issue will take, China wants to make sure that it has a, a role and a clear seat at the table. And so this is seen uh, in that light. But I would argue, I mean, there, there's a lot more in, in the dynamics uh, of the relationship that matter beyond that, right? We've talked in this podcast multiple times before about the charm offensive that Kim Jong-un has had over the past year or so with a bunch of other countries and, and China is among those. So you can see it from that perspective. And you can also see it from the perspective of this US-China relationship, which is being very testy and very challenging. And the Chinese and, and Beijing and Xi Jinping would be sort of looking to advertise to President Trump ahead of this meeting that, hey, China does hold some cards when it comes to the North Korea question, right? So those are my takeaways. And, you know, I'd be interested in hearing your insights too. You know, I, I recall the piece that you wrote for us uh, a while ago about the relationship between China and North Korea, the fact that, you know, it's an alliance relationship, but how would this actually be implemented in practice if this relationship was actually tested. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, has held up pretty well uh, with respect to how we're dealing with contemporary realities. Yeah, I mean, you know, so there's a lot that's kind of familiar uh, about this visit, kind of looking at the history of China-North Korea relations. Um, and, uh, you know, I do want to come back to the context that you raised about the broader Korean Peninsula diplomacy, because I think there's a lot interesting, um, a lot of interesting developments to talk about. And kind of when you take everything together, uh, it seems like there's more underway right now than has met the eye publicly. Um, but so, you know, comparing this visit to the Hu Jintao visit in 2005, um, what's interesting is that, you know, Xi's visit was elevated to a state visit, which is the highest kind of level of prestige that North Korea affords a bilateral visit. Um, uh, by contrast, uh, Hu Jintao in 2005 was in North Korea for a goodwill visit. And of course, um, you know, Kim Jong-il had his own skepticisms about China after inheriting the um, the throne, so to speak, in Pyongyang after uh, Kim Il-sung's death in 1994, um, waiting about six years before making his first uh, encounter with um, the Chinese president. So, um, you know, Kim kind of did the same thing. He inherited power in late 2011, and his first visit took place in March 2018. Uh, that was the day, of course, that all of us uh, were speculating about why the armored train known to have been used by Kim Jong-il had suddenly crossed the North Korean border. And lo and behold, Kim Jong-un appeared for his first meeting with any foreign leader um, on Chinese soil in Beijing, meeting with Xi Jinping, uh, emphasizing the special relationship between the two countries. And I really think special relationship is probably the right way to characterize it. I mean, it is a special relationship. Um, in, in Pyongyang this time, you know, Xi was reminded of the sacrifice of the Chinese people's volunteers during the Korean War. Um, of course, as we record this podcast on June 25th, it's the day the Korean War started 69 years ago. So that was uh, some of the symbolism there. So that uh, older language that you referenced about uh, the two countries being close as lips and teeth, I think both sides were trying to punch that up, emphasizing their shared historical heritage. But of course, there's a lot of uh, 
ill will uh, that's been simmering for years. And uh, she, I think, has been trying to keep Kim Jong-un on a short leash, so to speak. Uh, of course, publicly, it's very difficult to substantiate any of this because all we get are the state media readouts. Uh, but I found it quite interesting that the top... Uh, so last year when when she met Kim, there were four directives in the Xinhua readout that was published. And the top um, directive that she issued for China's relationship with North Korea was to sustain high-level exchanges between himself and Kim Jong-un because he said that was the best way to develop the relationship. And really what that was telling us is that, you know, China really wants a heads up about what Kim Jong-un is up to, um, especially, I think, with regards to the diplomacy with uh, South Korea and the United States. So what happened? We saw um, Kim travel to Beijing, uh, or sorry, not to Beijing, once to Beijing and once again to Dalian, where he met uh, Xi again after the Singapore summit. So he met Xi Jinping before the Singapore summit and after the Singapore summit. And then this January again, he met with Xi Jinping before the Hanoi summit. And of course, after Hanoi, even though Kim Jong-un had a very long, disappointing train ride back from Hanoi to Pyongyang through Chinese <laughs> territory, he did not stop in Beijing to check in with Xi Jinping. And at the time, I kind of took that as a sign that um, whatever North Korea's um, position was after Hanoi, it wasn't something to be shared with China. Uh, but of course, as you noted, uh, just days before the G20 meeting and an encounter between Xi and Trump, you have now this very high-level summit emphasizing the historic relationship and Xi supporting uh, peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula, which uh, I think some people have interpreted as a serious show of Chinese backing for, for Kim Jong-un. Um, but, you know, just zooming out a little bit now from the bilateral context, I did want to talk about some of the other developments um, that have been going on um, mm -hmm. just over the past couple weeks or so. So in May, our listeners will recall that uh, things appeared to be getting quite bad, right? Kim Jong-un carried out his first missile tests in over 520 days. Uh, he carried out two of these tests from each side of the North Korean coast. Um, so really, it looked like uh, things were, you know, the wheels were coming off the diplomatic process. This was after his major speech in April, his first public appearance in Hanoi, in which he warned the United States that without a, quote, bold decision, end quote, there would be no further summit between the United States and North Korea. And so those fundamentals have not changed, right? The fundamentals are still not in place, in my view, for a productive summit between Trump and Kim. Uh, in fact, the fundamentals weren't even in place before Hanoi, in my opinion. Uh, the fundamental problem being that the United States continues to insist on total disarmament, total nuclear disarmament in exchange for total sanctions relief. There is no smaller deal short of that, uh, you know, like what North Korea proposed in Hanoi. So the North Korean position is until you change your mind about that approach, we are not going to talk to you. Um, but anyways, I think June has been slightly different, right? So we have this Kim Shi summit. We have the G20 coming up. Um, but then there's been an exchange of letters again, right? So Trump and Kim have this very strange kind of epistolary relationship where they've been writing each other letters, which Trump has described as beautiful. And Kim has described his most recent letter from Trump as excellent. Um, so Trump received a birthday letter from Kim Jong-un uh, earlier earlier this uh, month. His birthday is on June 14th, so I guess Kim decided to make the most of that occasion. Of course, that just also comes a couple days after the first anniversary of the Singapore summit. Um, the State Department then announces that you know Pompeo would be accompanying Trump on his trip to Seoul, which will come right after the G20 summit. Uh, Trump will be in Seoul this weekend for a visit that is being framed as effectively a bilateral alliance check-in with Moon Jae-in. Um, mm -hmm. But it's looking like that visit is going to turn into something a little more ambitious because not only is Pompeo going, 
But um, John Bolton, the national security advisor, and Steve Began, the special representative on North Korea, are also going to be in Seoul at the same time. That's a fairly large entourage for a bilateral summit. And the South Korean media is speculating that there might be a visit to the demilitarized zone. Um, and more creatively, some people are speculating that, you know, uh, you know, a Trump and Moon might pull a summit out of the hat, so to speak, meeting Kim Jong-un at Panmunjom. I'm a little more skeptical about the prospect for that precisely because of the fundamentals. But, you know, I mean, if I if I have to be creative, I can imagine perhaps in the letter, which Kim Jong-un uh, was pictured by North Korean state media reading and describing as a very excellent letter. Uh, Trump apparently told Kim something quite encouraging. And what might that be? Well, I don't think it's going to be sanctions relief. But, I mean, we know from um, firsthand accounts from Trump of what happened at Hanoi that the two sides had discussed things like an end of war declaration to end the Korean War and a an exchange of liaison offices. So perhaps Trump has followed up in the letter about those, and that might be the basis for a third summit. But anyways, the point being that all of this is quite uncertain, and really we'll just have to wait wait and see in a matter of days what actually does happen in Seoul. But there does appear to be a broader recalibration uh, right now. And, you know, there's also, again, the X factor that Xi Jinping might um, possibly, you know, discuss the North Korea issue with Trump uh, at the G20 mm -hmm. if the meeting happens, as you suggested. But, you know, one caveat I'd say there is that it's very hard for me to imagine North Korea topping the agenda there because I think the two sides would have to get through the trade discussion successfully. And that is a very big if given the history of um, the recent history of U.S.-China uh, trade talks. So uh, I think uh, first you'd have to have the trade conversation and then she might be able to talk to Trump about about North Korea. Um, but yeah, uh, does uh, does any of that sound like it makes sense to you? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the the gist of what you, you said and summarized, I mean, I definitely agree with, which is that, you know, the atmospherics, there seems like a lot is is changing. There's a flurry of, of activity with this exchange of letters and, and all the visits and, and meetings that are going on. But the fundamental dynamics um, and interests of, of, of all the different sides haven't really changed, right? So if Trump is looking for some kind of big deal between the United States and North Korea, um, I still sense that you know that's not very likely. I, mean, I think the other thing that that's being uh, pursued, and I think folks in Washington are worried about, you know, is if Trump is too excited and too willing uh, to get a deal with North Korea, will he essentially agree uh, to certain provisions uh, that might sort of undermine uh, U.S. interests uh, in the Asia-Pacific and the U.S.-South Korea alliance in, in the sense of what uh, some advocates and, and more hardline uh, individuals in Washington would want, right? So the this idea that Trump would give in on, you know, through a declaration of some sort or sort of agree to a reduced U.S. military footprint in, in South Korea um, these are things that I think, you know, we're seeing an interesting conversation develop in Washington where, on the one hand, folks are thinking about, you know, what is the maximum which Trump could agree with with, with Kim, but also, I mean, what are the, the, the risks to that, right? Whether it's in terms of U.S. interests or, or short term in terms of the U.S.-South uh, Korea relationship. And really, I mean, I, I don't get the sense that um, the U.S.-South Korea relationship more broadly, we have gotten a sense of specifics about what would be discussed, right? There was an event at CSIS uh, yesterday where there was a State Department official that's in charge of uh, Korean affairs that mentioned that, you know, the agenda for the meeting, while there were not a lot of specifics that were being issued, um, 
that apart from the North Korea question and some alliance dynamics, I mean, the U.S.-South Korea alliance isn't in the best of shape, right? I mean, there are broader issues that Trump is trying to work out with the South Koreans. And at the same time, you know, the the Trump administration, we shouldn't forget, is dealing with a, an ongoing crisis with Iran. Um, and the president is making comments about um, how the United States shouldn't necessarily be safeguarding uh, the interests uh, when it comes to freedom of navigation and 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 the oceans, right? So we, we do have um, a, a lot on the agenda and a lot at stake, uh, as you mentioned here, as we approach the G20, and not all of it is um, with respect to North Korea or South Korea. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, no, I mean, certainly agree with you that the U.S.-South Korea alliance is not in particularly good shape, right? We only have to look at the special measures ag- uh, agreement negotiations. Um, that's the burden-sharing agreement between the two allies uh, last year as evidence of that. Uh, they're currently in an interim one-year arrangement that needs to be uh, again, uh, revisited and made into a, a five-year uh, normal SMA at some point, and that's going to be difficult. Um, and the burden-sharing thing, I think, is very much at the top of Trump's mind. There was that leak uh, just published uh, yesterday, Monday, July 24th, in Bloomberg, uh, saying that Trump's been musing to many of his advisors about ending the U.S.-Japan security treaty, right? So um, I think these factors are going to be a big component of this trip to Asia, uh, right? We haven't mm-hmm. seen Trump in Asia in a while, actually. So when he goes to Japan, when he goes to South Korea, I think uh, it will be an important moment to take the pulse on the alliance. Of course, he did just meet Moon Jae-in not that long ago, right, in April. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, all of these issues will be worth watching out for. Um, you know, going back to the issue of um, she and Kim, I mean, the other thing I think we should talk about is the message that the meeting between the two um, leaders sends about the maximum pressure campaign against North Korea, right? We um, One of the major developments that's happened since the Hanoi summit has been the U.S. Department of Justice uh, seizing the Wise Honest, the second largest commercial vessel in North Korea's fleet. Um, and, you know, I've kind of drawn the comparison that this is sort of similar to the 2005 um, action against Banco Delta Asia, where the Kim regime uh, was storing overseas assets. And that really ended up you know, derailing and making uh, negotiations with North Korea a lot more difficult because every time American negotiators came to the table with their North Korean counterparts, they wanted to talk about Banco Delta Asia, not about nuclear weapons, certainly. Um, so right now, I mean, the wise honest, I think, has really struck North Korea um, to the core. So, you know, again, meeting with... Uh, A meeting with Xi Jinping, the leader of a permanent member of the Security Council, I think, first of all, sends an important message there. Uh, You know, Kim notably has met now Xi and Putin. And last November, uh, there was a trilateral statement with, um, I believe it was at the deputy foreign minister level. Um, I'd have to check that. But I think it was deputy foreign minister level. And from the North Korean side, uh, the representative was um, the first vice minister of foreign affairs, uh, Choi Sun-hee, who's since been elevated in the North Korean system. And the three of them, uh, right, Russia, China, North Korea, trilaterally agreed to adjusting the sanctions regime on Mm -hmm. on North Korea. And that was significant. Uh, But I think what's been disappointing for Kim Jong-un is that he hasn't been able to get Putin or Xi to say that standing by his side. But, you know, not all is lost. Uh, I think the Putin summit might have been a little bit more disappointing for Kim. Uh, But with Xi Jinping, I mean, the message being sent here, uh, and of course, you know, uh, 
I mentioned earlier that the China-North Korea relationship is a special relationship. And one of the big reasons I think it's special is given the very asymmetric economic relationship between the two countries, which I think is what most Americans that are aware of the relationship between China and North Korea sort of appreciate, right? The fact that 90% of North Korea's overseas trade uh, depends on China. Uh, that's mm-hmm. often why you'll hear sort of, you know, presidential, um, you know, presidential campaigns uh, when they're asked about, you know, oh, what, we should, uh, you know, what should we do about North Korea? The, the standard boilerplate answer is, well, just get China to take the problem more seriously and cut off their economy. And of course, that's been a big part of the maximum pressure campaign, right? Um, we both heard in Singapore for the Shangri-La dialogue how um, you know, Pat Shanahan, I guess now the former acting secretary of defense, uh, gave his Chinese counterpart a picture book of ship-to-ship mm-hmm. transfer activity in Chinese territorial waters. So I think the message being sent here is that you know North Korea, again, has an out because China can effectively... You know, even while complying with UN sanctions, there are things that China can do to um, keep North Korea afloat effectively, right? Uh, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, humanitarian assistance to North Korea, preventing the resurgence of a famine, for example, is something that Beijing can play an important role in. And as long as she has that kind of, um, sorry, Kim has that kind of support from Xi, uh, I think that's quite important, and that really kind of hamstrings the maximum pressure campaign. Um, yeah. The only, uh, the only other thing that I'd add is. You know, with um, with Chinese economic support for North Korea, um, there you know there is the issue of what North Korea has been saying internally since Hanoi. Uh, there's really been kind of a sense that Kim's been telling uh, North Korean deputies to tighten their belts, so to speak. That uh, you know we aren't going to get sanctions relief, so it's time to work hard and make sure that we can still accomplish all of our objectives. You know, in science and technology, national defense, um, economic growth, um, elsewhere. So having Chinese support there, I think, also sends an important signal domestically that that things are going to be better because, you know, we still have China's backing. But again, the nature of that backing, I think, should be understood precisely because um, China, while it does have immense economic leverage over North Korea, isn't necessarily in a position to use its leverage to control what North Korea is doing at the end of the day. Yeah, I was going to ask you just just to come back to a point you made earlier, which is that um, despite all the talk of a third uh, Trump Kim summit, right, that you didn't think that this was likely at this at at least at this point, given where the dynamics are. I mean, what what would be the case further down the line, or what would it take for such a summit to take place, right? Because I think it it seems like we're still at a position where there are contrary opinions with respect to you know who kind of needs a deal more, right? Whether Trump is looking to get some sort of deal because he's always talked about North Korea as being this opportunity for him to showcase his negotiating skills. But the North Koreans, as you pointed out, you know, they need sanctions relief as well, and they could do with some sort of deal as well. But the the issue seems to me to be, we went through this uh, debate with the last Trump-Kim summit about, um, you know, the sort of big deal versus small deal uh, approach, right? So absent some sort of big deal, um, given the fact that that might be too ambitious. I, I, I'm not so sure, um, I'm like you as well, I mean, what the outlines of a small deal uh, approach might be that is that actually gets to this denuclearization question in any meaningful sense of the word. I mean, they can sort of talk about rhetorical declarations that maybe both sides will be uh, happy with, but it doesn't seem to me that there's any substantive movement in the interests uh, and the positions of both parties, right? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it sounds like you have two questions there. First is, you know, what would it take for the third summit to really come together? And the second is, you know, how would a small deal that deals with denuclearization really look like? 
Mm-hmm. On the on the first question, um, you know, I'm I'm trying to keep an open mind. I mean, obviously, you know, I read I read what the North Koreans say in their own state media, what they're saying internally, and what they're telling the world. And based off of those messages, there's a very clear North Korean position, which is that we aren't going to just do another summit for the sake of a summit and end up with an embarrassing outcome like Hanoi again. So what will you know what it will take for us to resume talks with you is evidence of that quote bold decision, right? So. Mm-hmm. That's the public signal privately. Uh, again, I don't know what's been in these letters that Kim and Trump have been sending each other, right? So there might have been some kind of private understanding there. And Kim is saying that he's contemplating the excellent contents of Trump's letter to him, right? So Trump might have made him an offer, right? Maybe the offer yeah. includes liaison office or something. And and is that enough to bring a summit together? Based on what the North Koreans have said in their state media, based on what Kim Jong-un has said, no. But of course, mm-hmm. Kim is the supreme leader of a monolithic system. And if he decides that it'll be worth it to, you know, pop down to Panmunjom at the demilitarized zone, shake Trump's hands and announce, you know, we're ending the Korean War and we are, um, you know, doing liaison offices. I can see that happening. Of course, I think the North Koreans wanted more in Hanoi and they might still want more. So, you know, it could just as easily not happen. So that's kind of one way that we might get a third summit. Um, mm-hmm. But again, the fundamentals to talk about denuclearization, I just think are not, you know, I just think they're not there. Um, <laughs> even even if the administration said tomorrow that, you know, okay, we will do a step-by-step agreement. I've seen very little evidence. I mean, looking at the way the Trump administration negotiates with other countries that um, they are willing to effectively make any concessions to weaker countries. I mean, forget weaker countries. They're not even willing to make uh, any concessions in the trade talks with China, right? That's a big reason why the trade talks have right. collapsed, which is they, you know, they expect Beijing to uh, acquiesce to all of their uh, conditions without making any exchanges uh, in return. It's, you know, it's kind of been an old standing, um, I guess, a long standing problem with um, a few administrations. I guess most prominently the Bush administration had a very similar approach to uh, negotiating, uh, refusing to make any kind of concessions. So the problem with the step by step. Uh, step-by-step approach is how do you put a price on a specific North Korean concession related to the nuclear program? Um, mm-hmm. The price will be paid in sanctions relief. And I think based on public comments that we've heard from Steve Began, John Bolton, um, any price there is too high for them, right? So they um, that's a big reason why they effectively want North Korea to agree to a complete denuclearization roadmap before they can lift any sanctions. So, you know, my kind of broader theory about this whole process since the beginning effectively has been that um, we aren't back in fire and fury land where we were in 2017. That's currently being dealt out to Iran. Um, but uh, what what could be good is if, you know, we don't fall off the cliff on the other side, right? Kim Jong-un, uh, what I didn't mention is when he was talking in April and he gave that speech where he made the reference to the U.S. needing to make a bold decision, effectively said that he wouldn't wait forever. He, he said that pretty much after December 31st, 2019, mm-hmm. the end of this year, uh, you know, the gloves come off and North Korea is going to go back probably to testing long-range missiles, uh, possibly even conducting nuclear tests, the moratorium that it announced last year on nuclear testing and intercontinental range ballistic missile testing would probably end. So those are very bad things. Uh, so perhaps if we do have a summit come up out of the blue and liaison offices exchanged, uh, that could be a very good way to give the process enough confidence where we don't have to, again, risk that reality in an election year where North Korea goes back to staging large provocations and Trump needs to look strong and we potentially are looking at another major crisis between the two countries. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would just add, I mean, the, 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 the question that you posed or the issue that you posed about, you know, how long can, can we wait for, for the outcome is an important one, right? It seemed like, you know, the indications from South Korea were that, you know, after the, the second Trump Kim summit, if there was a successful outcome that the South Koreans were ready to move forward with a number of steps on their own uh, accord with respect to inter-Korean relations, right, which is a huge priority for the Moon administration. So even if we don't get a deal, it seems to me that the, the big question is, you know, how long can we wait before uh, these other players, you know, whether it's South Korea or China or Russia, um, you know, go on and sort of move forward with what they've always intended to do, and rather than waiting for the U.S.-North Korea track to to actually formalize and materialize. And then we're in a tough situation there as well, right? Yeah. All right. Well, unfortunately, Prashant, we are running out of time. Uh, you know, I could talk about Korea all day, but um, yeah, I think we'll have to end it there. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for joining me. Um, so yeah, that was a uh, review of the Kim Shi meeting last week and the upcoming G20 summit meeting. And I suspect uh, there will be plenty to talk about out of the G20. There's a whole range of bilaterals, uh, trilaterals uh, taking place on the sidelines, um, not only Trump and Xi, but uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi apparently has 10 bilaterals lined up and trilaterals with Russia and China and Japan and uh, the United States. Uh, also on the sidelines, um, we're anticipating, of course, major um, addresses by uh, the host, um, Shinzo Abe of Japan. So I highly suspect that we'll be back to talk about the G20 next week. So, And I hope you'll uh, return to listen to the podcast. And a good way to do that is to subscribe. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do that on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or any other number of um, podcast providers. And if you have been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, um, I would really appreciate uh, if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. So um, that's all for today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.